Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Hello, my name is Ethan. I'm a uh, member here at St. Oswald's and um, also doing a ministry apprenticeship uh, which sees me uh, hanging out a lot with Angus, which is a delight, and learning a bunch of things. And um, I'm just thrilled to be able to preach to you this morning. Um, just in case uh, you missed it there, we are looking today at Romans chapter 14, uh, which goes from verse 13 to 23. And if you um, would like to keep that open, uh, I'll be referring to that throughout uh, the sermon, and um, you can take your cues from there, the Word of God. So feel free to call that up. Uh, We love choice. Take your pick. What would you like? Is the question we get asked as we walk up to the person standing behind the counter at Papa's Patisserie, Happy Field, or Raphael's Bakery. You name it and they'll say it. What would you like? At Shanghai Night Dumplings in Asheville, it's not the question, but the 10-page menu that alerts you to the many choices you have. While at Gelato Messina in Glebe, the flavors are almost endless, and naturally, the choices are almost endless too. How do I even choose becomes the real question. And so, to make the whole process easier, The decision is made to come visit again, to avoid missing the chance to choose the other flavors. And so the inevitable cycle begins. We walk toward the waiter and we ask the question, or we're asked the question rather, what would you like? It's sweet to hear because when we hear the question, we know we are free and we have freedom. But one day, for some of us, and perhaps it's already happened for you, you begin to hear that question less and less frequently, and ever increasingly you find yourself without choice. How could it be that here in the inner West, with cafes coming out of our ears, and Western individualism shooting through the roof, that you might get asked that question less and less, what would you like? And it's not that hard to imagine why, actually. Life's circumstances can begin to constrain you. Perhaps you still visit Messina to get your fix, and it's not a freedom you have to give up. But more than ever, you might find that you recognize and feel things in your life that limit your freedom. You're a student who's moved out of home and has taken up a job in order to pay the rent. You're a migrant, you've left your home country in order to come to Australia, and you simply can't afford life's indulgences. You're a mother or a father, and when you get up in the morning, your first question will always be, what would you like, my child? Or you're a house hunter, and buying a house in Sydney means limiting your freedom in all sorts of ways. There are all sorts of reasons why we limit our freedom. We count the cost 
because we have a vision for our future and attaining the vision requires us to let go, some, let go of something in the present. It's hard. Freedom is celebrated and treasured, though we understand sometimes it's worth limiting for future gain. Which raises the question, what would be worth limiting your freedom for? We all have an answer. Career, kids, spouse, a house. But what about your brother or sister's holiness? Does that figure anywhere for you? In today's passage, Paul turns the freedom question away from the big ticket items that we'd be willing to sell an arm and a leg for and turns it instead towards the obedience and faithfulness of our brothers and sisters. If you were free to do what would be sinful for your brother or sister, would you give up your freedom for their faithfulness? Today, we're going to see that God's love, when it gets deep into our hearts, will move us to give up our freedom for the sake of others. And when it does, we'll be a community that's radically attractive to those around us. Just two points for you this morning. Point one, the voice of conscience. And point two, God's freeing love. Point one, the voice of conscience. Many people today view the Bible as a big book of rules. You read it. Maybe you pause to think about it, but the real name of the game is following the rules and doing exactly what the Bible tells you. Say goodbye to your freedom. But if you've spent a bit of time reading the Bible in your life, you'll know it's not nearly that simple. And perhaps you've even thought to yourself, if only it were that clear and easy. God hasn't given us a comprehensive rule book. At its heart, Christianity isn't about following rules. It's about following a person, Jesus Christ. And there's plenty that Jesus taught about. Then again, there's plenty Jesus didn't teach about. And one day, if you haven't experienced it already, you'll find yourself wondering what it is that Jesus would have you do in a situation that Jesus never mentioned. What to do, what to do. You wonder, and maybe even despair, that God has left you in a place of uncertainty. If the Bible were a big book of rules, we'd find ourselves severely ill-equipped for much of life. Of course, God never leaves us. No height, no depth can separate us from his love, even in what you might call the gray areas of Christian living where what obedience looks like is unclear. Even then, God has gifted us with all that we need to be faithful to him. And there's something within each of us and within our Christian culture that wants to resist these gray areas. We fear the uncertainty of walking in the gray and spending time wrestling with what it looks like to be obedient. Instead, we like to plow on. And what can, this can look like sometimes is that we insist on church-wide rules that go beyond Jesus' teaching in an effort to turn what is gray into black and white. Many of us will know what that's like. But the point here is that we need not fear the gray because God has gifted us a conscience 
which combined with his other gifts of prayer and the Bible, equips us with what we need to figure out how to be faithful to him. We're all familiar, I think, with the idea of a conscience, but do you recognize your own? Do you hear its voice whispering in your ear? Do you feel its tug in your heart and its presence in your thoughts? It says things like, do this, but don't do that. Act in this way, but not that way. Say yes here, but say no there. More than we realize, we navigate everyday moments in conversation with our conscience. To be human is to have one. And most simply defined, the conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Come up against a question of right and wrong, and your conscience will probably have something to say about it. If you'd like to test this, I invite you to have a conversation with a group of people after church this morning and work your way through some of these topics. Smoking, alcohol, R-rated movies, Harry Potter, technology, parenting, Halloween, Santa Claus. The temperature of the room may rise very quickly because we each have our own consciences, which plays a significant part in helping out helping you to work out what is right. That the Bible is not an exhaustive rule book shows us that God is not on for shackling us to an overly prescribed way of life. The gray areas remind us that in many ways we have freedom, freedom in Christ to work out how to live for him And your conscience will give you the freedom or it will constrain your freedom. Either way, on issues that are grey in the Bible, it doesn't matter so much whether you have freedom or are constrained so long as you are faithful to God in how you apply your conscience to your actions. We find ourselves looking today at a community of believers who have applied their consciences to their diet. And the result is differing views. For the Gentile Christians, and we heard a bit about last week, pork, shrimp, lobster, rabbit, camel, if they want it, it's all on the menu. They have no issue eating whatever takes their fancy. For the Jewish Christians, however, to eat certain foods would be to ignore their God-given conscience, and it would be to dishonor God. In the wake of a long Jewish tradition where faithfulness to God involved abstaining from certain foods, the conscience of the Jewish believers spoke loudly to them on this issue. Essentially, they're dealing with the question, what do you do when Angus Courtney has one standard but Ross has another? When Ollie Winch's conscience permits something that Pages forbids. Do you see the great dilemma here? The conscience of the Gentile Christians gives them freedom when the conscience of the Jewish Christians constrains them. In other words, what is sinful for one group is not sinful for the other. And in a world that wants everything to be black and white, our God-given conscience reminds us there's a whole lot of gray 
and in Christian culture that is nervous about the gray, our conscience is a comfort. We can take the anxiety away because it's inevitable that each of us will have our freedoms allowed or constrained to differing extents. Difference here is unavoidable. And Paul models this non-anxiousness about the gray areas beautifully. Have a look with me at verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. You might wonder, as the guy who's trying to avoid this clash between Gentile and Jew Christians, it doesn't seem like the smartest move from Paul to admit that his conscience lines up with the Gentiles. So why does he do it? He does it because Paul knows that dealing with differences of conscience begins not when we shy away from our differences, but when we go up and into them, when we are transparent and honest and we admit where our consciences lie. Paul says as much later on, the faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. In other words, let your conscience do its work in the gray areas of the Christian life and whether that limits or limits your freedom or gives you freedom, hold on to it as your conviction. And I think we all tend to shy away from thinking about those gray areas. Perhaps we're afraid about what it will mean to actually just acknowledge in the first place that not everything is black and white. Perhaps we're disappointed that God leaves us in what looks like an unclear situation. Perhaps we're afraid of the conflict that might occur when we arrive at a different conclusion to our brother or sister. How often do you shy away from sitting in the uncomfortable ambiguity of the Christian life? And sitting on the fence can become for us less a reflection of our real doubt about what we think and more a reflection of a fear of being sure of what we think and the conflict that might come. But friends, the encouragement is, let us not fear. God has not left us in the dark. God has gifted us with a conscience to work out what will honor him in the gray areas. And his love will shepherd us through any conflict that may arise, which brings us to point two, God's freeing love. As we've seen, your conscience will allow you freedom or it will constrain you. And the freedoms you enjoy will be good things. Food, alcohol, TV shows and movies, banter and jokes, clothes and music. These good freedoms, though, are not ultimate things. And when we know God's love for us, we'll find ourselves more than ever actually ready to give up what our conscience allows us to do in these areas for the sake of loving other people. And this is what's at stake here in our passage, verse 15. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. 
Paul drives home his point even more. He picks it up again in verse 19. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. You see, the freedom of the Gentile Christians to eat anything was in danger of injuring, ruining, destroying the Jewish Christians. And the seriousness of Paul's words here might seem extreme to you, but perhaps more than you realize, we live this out. We live the seriousness of this out. Let me explain. How do you act when children are around? Are you careful of the movies, the TV shows, the songs you consume? Are you careful of the jokes you make? Are you careful of the conversations you have within earshot of a child? We know that children can't handle things that we can. What we can watch freely, a child will be damaged by. So too, with our brother or sister who doesn't enjoy the freedom you have. Is it patronizing to live this way? Well, if we live without a sense of superiority, it's not patronizing, it's just loving. Because if we insist on our freedom, we may do serious damage to our brothers and sisters, either option one, they'll participate in what we're doing when they really shouldn't, and so they'll sin before God. Or point two, they'll leave us and form their own church somewhere else because rightly they can't be around us if we're going to lead them into what will be sin. But there's a better way. God is a good father. His wisdom is perfect. And when we give up our freedom, we tend to think we're going to lose, that we'll be empty, self-denying, and we'll miss out. God knows instead that what looks like emptiness is actually gain. We'll gain joy, peace, and righteousness. God does not leave us empty-handed. When we give up our freedom for the sake of others, we gain rich treasures. Verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. God is good and offers up for us righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, because by giving up your freedom, you will have not sinned by causing your brothers and sisters to stumble, and nor will they have sinned. Righteousness will abound. Peace, because instead of disunity, division, and conflict, peace will pervade the community. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Joy. Joy. How does that work? This one we might find a little harder to grasp because our culture will tell us that giving up your freedom will rob your joy. And this is where Christianity has an amazing story to tell because it's true that the one who gives up their freedom for the sake of others finds joy upon joy upon joy. Think of Jesus, the one who dwelt with God the Father and the Spirit at the creation of the world, the one to whom 
all peoples are subject. Jesus became subject himself to man on the cross. He gave up his freedom to be tied down to a tree. So great is his love for you and I that he did not need to hold on to what was rightly his. He could let it go. How do we know that Jesus would live out what Paul speaks of in this passage? We know because more than anyone else in the history of the world, Jesus has given up more freedom out of love. And the more we see and taste the love of Jesus on the cross, the freer we'll be to give up our freedoms. What did Jesus gain? The book of Hebrews tells us joy. We look to Jesus, it says, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus endured the pain of giving up his freedom, knowing he'd gain great joy. And the more we grasp the gospel, the more we'll find ourselves giving up our freedom out of love in order to build up others. When we get God's love deeper into our hearts, we'll find the power, the energy, and the desire to give up your freedom for the sake of others, following Jesus' beautiful way. It's this kind of love that we need here at St. Oswald's in order to thrive as a community. It's this kind of love that will enable you to give up your freedom for another. We're only two and a half years into life as a church, uh, two and a half years into relationships with each other, In fact, many of us actually are a year in, or six months, or even a few weeks. And I'd be surprised, just to guess, if this far into your relationships with one another, you've already experienced a clash of conscience. And I think that would be the case for one of two reasons. Maybe the exact issue or the set of circumstances that would bring out differing consciences among us haven't come up yet. We just haven't been together long enough. But secondly, and relatedly, it can take a real depth of relationship in order for us to feel like we can express a view that others might not themselves hold onto. Differing views of conscience, when they're not forced out by circumstance, will come out more and more when we feel safe with one another. And in order to get there, in order to arrive at that depth and quality of relationship that many of us already know and love and experience here, we actually need to throw off some of the freedoms we have which will prevent us from doing community together. Uh, Tim Keller tweeted a word of challenge to millennials. So millennials in the room, this is for you. But actually, I think so pervasive is our Western culture, it's helpful for all of us to hear. He says, you are the generation most afraid of real community because it inevitably limits freedom and choice. We all have fears 
that limit us and hold us back from going deeper into community with one another. Fears that mean we hold on to freedom and choice rather than giving them up for the sake of going deeper into relationships. What do I mean? How, how does this actually work? Well, do you fear missing out? We all do, I think. And our culture tells us our deepest need is to taste and try everything and travel everywhere to always make yourself available so you're never unavailable and never in danger of missing out. But what that looks like in the end is finding nowhere to settle and never really knowing anyone. In the reality of God's love, this fear of missing out will melt away. We won't feel like we're missing out on other things by being committed to a church community because we'll know that it's in relationship week to week, that we truly come alive. Do you fear settling down? We've been told our whole lives not to settle for anything. We're paralyzed, we can be paralyzed, about committing to someone or some place because we might find ourselves settling for less. But in the reality of God's love, this fear will melt away. We won't fear settling down because we know we don't need to experience it all in this life, we have eternal life to come. So we can settle down now and dig into community. Do you fear accountability? Perhaps where our culture is community phobic because we're accountability phobic to a degree that inhibits us from seeing the value of loving correction. We avoid community perhaps because we're scared for anyone to know us well enough to call us out on anything. But in the reality of God's love, this fear will melt away because we'll know how deeply God loves us in our mess and brokenness. We'll know that we're accepted by him at our very worst. And therefore, in a community of his people, we won't need to fear being known deeply by our brothers and sisters at church. God's love when it gets deep into our hearts, will help us to give up freedoms that prevent us from going deeper into community with one another here at St. Oswald's. We'll be unafraid to give up our freedom for the sake of others. And when that happens, as that continues to happen, as it already happens amongst us, we'll be a community that's radically attractive to those around us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we might take up the kind of relationships with one another that our culture longs for but can't seem to find. We know, Lord, that it's your love that enables us to do this. Your gospel, your son Jesus, whose own self-sacrifice and giving up of freedom wins us over to his beautiful ways. Help us, Lord, because you are the only one who can and will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.